many young Americans have misconceptions about the government's policies for marijuana use and security clearance eligibility. That's from a report released last week on 420, and that date is something of a national pot day. Regardless, the confusion might be stopping some young professionals from starting a career in national security. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And tell us who issued this report and what it specifically found. Sure. This is a survey that was actually issued by Clearance Jobs, the Clearance Jobs website, and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. So two pretty reputable outfits there did a survey Uh, They got 905 respondents from people aged 18 to 30 currently living or attending school in Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C., California, Florida, Texas, and Colorado. Big states with a lot of cleared jobs. And essentially, 55% of the respondents in that group said they would consider applying for a job that requires a security clearance, and 24% were maybe. But more than half of those polled said that their perception of screening requirements would prevent them from applying for a clearance. That includes 21% who said they wouldn't apply because they would need to report prior drug use or drug and alcohol use. And that includes marijuana as well. Uh, 9% of the respondents incorrectly said people who hold a security clearance are actually able to use marijuana. And 31% said it would be okay in a state where it's legal. And that's obviously not the case. Only 23% were aware of the policy that while past marijuana use is a factor, it shouldn't be the sole disqualifying factor in deciding whether to grant a clearance. And just a third were aware that once you get a clearance, you're not allowed to use marijuana or you put that clearance at risk. Well, when people were informed of the policy that it's not a determinant, then what do they say? So once they were informed of the correct policies, 25% of respondents said the ban on marijuana use would prevent them from seeking a cleared position. And 18% said they would not stop using marijuana to increase the likelihood that they'll be granted a clearance. So there's a good chunk of people who, once they're informed of the correct policies, say, eh, I don't think I'll apply for a government job that requires a security clearance. Uh, On the same token, about a third said that they would actually stop using and and start getting themselves ready to potentially get a clearance once they were informed of the fact that basically they just have to stop using before they get a cleared position. Right. So you can have used it in the past. You've got to stop using it before applying. And once you get clearance, you got to stay off it, basically. Essentially. And, And, you know, intelligence leaders have recognized that there's some confusion around, you know, there were historically strict policies on past marijuana use. And of course, there's a rising tide of states that are legalizing marijuana, even though it's illegal federally. And there's also a rising tide of Americans who are using marijuana. Recent poll found 48% of Americans reported trying marijuana at least once in their lifetime. So they've issued clarifying guidance, essentially saying what we just laid out. While its past use can be a factor, Agencies shouldn't just disqualify someone because someone used marijuana in college. Yeah, that's against federal law, but it shouldn't be the sole disqualifying reason. There's a practical matter here, too. If you used it 10 years ago or five years ago, it's not going to show up in a test. And so just say no. You never did. Uh, that's my it's, take. It's true, but you, you, are, you are encouraged to be truthful on these forms, of course. And if you're going to get an SCI sure. clearance, you will get polygraphed, although I'm not sure if they actually ask questions about weed during that polygraph. Yeah, and somebody will use chat APT or whatever that thing is called and create a younger 
version of you in a deep fake toking away or something and send that into your agency and how do you disprove that one? All right, so the intelligence community is trying to clarify the policies. How are they getting the word out and making sure people do understand the facts? Yeah, so in 2021, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued this clarifying guidance basically telling agencies that they should use the whole person concept when deciding whether to grant a security clearance. And that includes past marijuana use. So while someone may have used marijuana in the past, they can mitigate that, according to this guidance, by pointing to, you know, the frequency of use if it wasn't that frequent. And they can also demonstrate that future use is unlikely to recur. So that's a way that you can kind of get over this issue during the clearance application process. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines has also come out and said bluntly that we want to make sure we're not disqualifying people solely for the purpose of using weed, especially now that many states have legalized or decriminalized it. But she also emphasized that current policy is that folks are expected to follow federal laws once they're in a trusted position. Any other steps that the intelligence community or INSA are taking to blow the smoke away, you might say? Yeah, well, it's a little hazy right now, obviously. And so I think one thing folks are saying is there needs to be more education about this issue. But it also is a little bit of a gray area. As you can tell from my explanation about the guidance, it's a little bit like, well, you can, but you need to make sure Sure. that you're not going to do it anymore. And some agencies apply it differently. Congress has actually considered some efforts to basically say in law, prior marijuana use can't be the sole disqualifying factor for a security clearance applicant. But that proposal from Senator Ron Wyden was actually shot down last year in the intelligence authorization bill. We'll see if that gets revived and this gets cleared up a little bit in law as well. Well, this sounds like a good case for a new joint task force. I think that's a good idea, Tommy. I think you can keep these puns going, too, if you get one of those. All right. Anything else we need to know from the survey? One interesting thing, and it's not related to marijuana, but it's actually that 20 percent of these young people who were surveyed said needing to report mental health struggles or their their perception that they would need to report mental health struggles would actually stop them from applying for clearance. And that's a pretty big deal. You know, officials in recent years have sought to reduce the stigma around seeking mental health treatment in the intelligence community, saying, you know, it's very, very, very unlikely for it to put your clearance at risk unless you're being treated for some condition that requires hospitalization. But still, one in five young people have this perception that mental health struggles would preclude them from getting a clearance. So that's another data point to consider here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. 
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, mm-hmm. Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.